me to Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4. Everybody have a good day today? Glad to be here? Good. By the way, uh, we did turn in the final numbers for the Caribbean cookout. Um, uh, I don't know this to be a fact, but possibly if you're in this room and you somehow missed the last three weeks of announcements and still put it off and still put it off and still put it off, um, if you would let Trevor know immediately after the service, and then I can we can send a note to Shane and find out. <laughs> uh, and Marge is here. Some of you might even know. I don't even know if he got everything today, but uh, but I we sent him numbers, and I think we sent him 86 individual people, uh, 86 individual people, and then another, like, I don't know how many we had, 40-something for pizza. So uh, Jamaican did win over pizza. It, it really did win. Um, but there were some that were like, still not my thing, you know, so. Uh, but really, we've, we've passed the deadline, but... If somehow you got in through the overtime period here, you know, you could check with Trevor afterwards. We could double check on that. But that's just so we don't uh, miss anybody. And we did have a couple extras for visitors and things like that that we try and think about them. So anyway, Jonah chapter 4, uh, if your Bibles are open, you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and we can put one in your hand. Um, we finished chapter 3. Let's look at verse 10 because verse 10 is kind of key to transition into chapter 4. And Jonah's response to verse 10. So let's look at verse 10 again. Then God saw their works. This is the repentance of uh, Nineveh. That they turned from their evil way. Verse 10, uh, chapter 3. And God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. Well, aren't you glad he's done that in our life? Verse 1, chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he became angry, the angry pastor, the angry prophet. He's not a pastor here, but he's a prophet, um, an evangelist. So he prayed. That's good, I think. Then we get going. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was this not what I said was, uh, when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and a abundant and loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Sounds like the kind of God you want to serve, but Jonah here is not happy with this. Therefore, he's still praying, Oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, God doesn't get all emotional back. He said, is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went out from the city and sat on the east side of the city. There he made for himself a shelter, and he sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. He's still hoping. And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might shade uh, for his head, uh, might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm, and it damaged the plant. It withered, and it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wished 
death for himself second time he wanted to die. And he said, it is better for me to die than to live. God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? He said, it is right for me to be angry, even to death. But the Lord said, you've had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in the night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which more than 120,000 persons cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and much livestock. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. Lord, we thank you for all that it instructs us. Lord, we know that you don't, you don't leave out even the, the warts and the flaws of your servants to show us, Lord, our own hearts. And we pray, Lord, at, at this middle of the week, you would just give us a respite here tonight, remove the cares and concerns of the day, drive out anything that would distract us from hearing the voice of your spirit. Minister to us by your word as you have through worship already. Lord, we pray your blessing on the other classes that are taking place here tonight. And Lord, may we leave here more in love with Jesus and more thankful for your mercy than when we came in here tonight. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We saw in chapter 3 the amazing reversal and repentance of the ancient city of Nineveh. If you didn't catch last week, go back and listen and you'll hear about the Assyrian Empire and just how uh, just really stunning and amazing the city itself was. But that turning from sin and wickedness, which nobody, nobody would have ever foreseen, well, except for Jonah, he kind of did think it could happen, which is part of the issue of uh, how he's responding. But he preached for three days, you recall, the circumference of the city at you know, close to 60 miles in circumference, and he went all through the city for three days with a very simple message. Yet 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. We saw how the people responded. We saw how God responded to their response. He relented. He withheld from bringing disaster. All I had God has to say is the word in it. Any place is incinerated. But how will Jonah now respond? He's been chastened severely. He nearly died in a storm, right? He nearly died in the, in the ship. Then he's tossed overboard. He's in the belly of a whale or a fish for three days. He's been delivered and forgiven of his own rebellion. He's been resent and reused to be the voice of one of the greatest revivals and perhaps the greatest revival the world has ever seen. Although not everybody saw it because different centuries, different time periods, but he was there. He was used. If you've ever read the, if you've ever read this story before, or let, let me put it, if you had never read this story, let's say you had never read it, and you don't know anything about how chapter 4 is going to go, you would probably think chapter 4, if you didn't read chapter 4 and you didn't know it was coming, you might assume that Jonah is hugging person after person in the streets of Nineveh, just saying, I cannot believe this. Welcoming them to the family of God. Or perhaps the people of Nineveh are hoisting him up like, you know, at the end of a football game, and they've got him up on the shoulders, celebrating that God had sent this man to bring this message of repentance. 
and that, praise God, they all listened. You would think it would be some massive celebration, Jonah right in the middle of it all. Or maybe a giant worship service where the king and the leaders are all up on the stage and the platform sharing how they can now all grow in their walk with the Lord and, and Jonah exhorting them in their new faith. But no, chapter 4 is a lot different than that, isn't it? Drastically different. It's one of the ways you know that God wrote the Bible because it doesn't tell us, you know, it's not always the way we would script it. It, it just kind of shows everyone's flaws. Without knowing how chapter 4 would go, you could probably write a hundred different endings and not come up with anything close to these 11 verses. Now, maybe you're a pessimistic, uh, glass-half-empty kind of person. I hope you're not. And maybe you say, no, I would still be convinced that Jonah is not going to change his mind about Nineveh. But you still couldn't envision the whole scene of how it plays out, the plant, the worm, all of this other stuff. The real focal point, though, in this closing chapter, it isn't Jonah. It isn't the people of Nineveh. It isn't even the revival that took place in and of itself. The spotlight is on the mercy of God. The mercy of God. His kindness. His goodness. His grace. His mercy. There's nothing any of us have done to deserve his mercy. Do you agree with that? And we leave here today, I hope that we'll even be more appreciative of it than when we came in. If you're taking notes, you see the title of our time and the word, His Mercy Flows. And we'll look at three things, no, just two things tonight. Just two. Uh, one, we'll start, Jonah's attitude. We're going to keep it really simple. Jonah's attitude. He has an attitude. We all have an attitude. It's either a good one or a not so good one at times. Mean, sometimes it's maybe in the middle. But uh, Jonah's attitude here is, uh, without question, bad. Jonah, he sees this miraculous turning away from sin, away from violence, away from immorality and idolatry, and turning to the true and living God. He sees all this, sackcloth, ashes, not just some of the people, but everyone, from the king all the way down to the least known person of the city. Uh, verse 11 tells us 120,000 people. And some scholars believe that's just the adults. I'm not sure. We don't know for certain. There's, there's debate on how many people. If that, sometimes the scriptures will talk about those that had uh, the age of accountability in the sense to repent. So whether it was 120,000 total or just the adults, but at any rate, the entire ancient city of Nineveh, one of the most spectacular cities of the ancient world, repents in one day. After the three days comes a one-day repentance. And Jonah is the only person who's a believer in God to witness it. There's no one else there but Jonah and all of Nineveh. So he's amazed Blown away, worshiping and praising God, right? Nope. He's not just a little bit bummed out. He's not just a little agitated. He's overcome by deep disappointment. Deep disappointment. Even more than that, 
We're told here in verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. He's exceedingly displeased with God and becomes angry. The original Hebrew, uh, this word means strong, strong anger, like kind of like grit your teeth, want to break something anger. Instead of soaring and rejoicing in all God's done, he's seething and reeling in anger. So Jonah decides to have a prayer meeting with himself and God. Just no one else there. You've, you've had them, it's just you and the Lord, right? Verse 2, so he prayed to the Lord. It's a good start. Not a bad idea when our attitude needs to be adjusted. But that's not why Jonah is going to pray. His prayer isn't to be changed. His prayer is he's trying to change God's mind. You ever done that? <laughs> you go and try to change God's mind. That's where Jonah's at. So it is a time of prayer. Yes, it is. Motive, on the other hand, is not a real good one, or even a wise one, I would add, um, to try and get really angry with the Lord. His prayer goes back to his original issues and concerns. He says, uh, Ah, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my own country? He's from Galilee, northern part of Israel. He said, When you came to me with this mission, I told you, bad idea because they're just liable to listen to it and repent. And again, we've talked about Assyria. You can kind of understand his apprehension. I mean, these people were vile, violent, wicked. And he really thought they, they should pay. They've been doing this for a long time. The empire would last 300 years. Now, this is earlier in the empire, but still, it had already been quite a while of rampaging and just marauding over, torturing, killing. And he, he's like, no, I, I don't want to see them receive mercy, receive grace. Now Jonah, he thinks highly of himself here. He was, I think he really was a faithful servant. Sometimes faithful servants can really start to have a spiritual pride. Something we need to all avoid. If you are being faithful, stay really humble. In his own righteous life, and uh, he thinks highly of the plant that God's going to give him. He thinks a lot of the plant that he didn't create, he didn't care for, all these different things. But um, he has a lot of anger and issues here that he just wants God to say, hey, I know you're gracious. I know you're willing to relent. But I want you to do what you're really good at, God, and that's bring judgment. And so he tells God several things God already knows. And he reverts back to the same attitude that caused him to run in the first place. And his prayer continues. If you're not going uh, to consume them, God, if you're not going to judge them, 
please just take my life. If they're going to live, I'd rather die. And since Nineveh didn't die, I'd like to take their place and take an early exit out of this world. This is really Jonah's prayer. You see it there. Now, therefore, O Lord, please take my life from me. Can you see some of our own foolish attitudes and responses to God's goodness? Can you see some of that? I mean, it may not be as heightened, but you can probably see your own attitudes at times, certainly mine, when we whine about things. God responds to none of this. Notice that God didn't like start to line by line uh, address his every concern. He doesn't respond that way at all. He just asked Jonah a simple question. Verse 4, is it right for you to be angry? A lot of times Jesus would ask people questions, wouldn't he? He'd say, what, what, is it, what is written? What do you think the law says? Things like that. Yeah, ca- cause us to think. Cause us to probe our own heart. Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Is it right? A lot of times we'll come back, well, well it's not Right? But it sure makes sense. Something along those lines. God's like, no, no, I didn't ask you if it makes sense. I asked you if it was right. We're really good, um, and our country is now really good at parsing words. You notice that? Everyone's a lawyer now. Used to be just lawyers were lawyers. But now when you, when you read social media, you now everyone has a platform to parse words. But God simply says, are you right? Is it right? The dialogue stops. God seems to kind of uh, stop with verse 4 for at least a, a period of time there. The dialogue stops. And Jonah, he's still, still stewing, though. He goes out, verse 5, he goes outside the city, sits on the east side of the city, makes himself a shelter. He can get a good view. Uh, amazing. Uh, He made it out of two near-death experiences, the ship and then inside the whale or or the fish, whatever it was. He he made it out of two near-death experiences, becomes the first person ever to live three days under the ocean but not in a submarine, right? No one's ever done this before. He cried out to God there in unspeakable anguish. God heard him. God delivered him. In the darkness, he had this beautiful work of personal repentance. He was recommissioned. He was resent. He was redeputized, if you will, by the Lord. He was protected by God in the world's most vile and evil and violent city. He was totally protected. I mean, is this not amazing stuff? The rest of us are saying, Jonah, How are you missing all this? He preaches three days. He sees this unbelievable revival. And even after getting everything off his chest, which I don't recommend making a habit with the Lord, he's still livid. God kind of like exits the scene, so to speak, here. And he's still frustrated. The city of wickedness has escaped the wrath of God. He's sti- it doesn't matter. He's had the dialogue. He's, pr- he's still now, he's parked on the east side of the city looking down in his stubborn and self-righteous attitude. He's still hopeful. He's still holding out hope here. 
that either A, somehow his great prayer is going to change God's mind and that God will listen to Jonah's wisdom and tantrum. Either, either that. Or B, what I think he really was thinking, he's hoping that Nineveh quickly goes back to their sins and that they have just kind of a spring up repentance, but quickly, he's like, if I wait here long, I know these people. They will be sinning in no time flat again. It's in them. So he sits there and builds himself a little shelter so he can watch and see, all right, I'm hoping that they collapse back into their old ways so God will have to destroy them. You've got to love how the Lord is responding to all of this. He continues to let Jonah think about his own attitude, but while Jonah has found this upper deck bleacher seat on the east side, God gives him an organic awning to cover him, which Jonah did not pray for. Remember, he tried to build his own little shelter, and then God just kind of sends up this plant that covers him completely. Because as the sun rises, you know, or, or at that well, he was already in the sun at the end of this day, and then it's going to the worms going to come in the night, but then it will rise in the morning. But God says, "All right, you built your own little shelter. I'll do something better." Just plant comes out of another miracle, by the way. That you'd think Jonah would say, "This is another." really oddity compared to how most people are experiencing God in their life. And so he gets this plant, and you see his response. He made for himself, in the middle of verse 5, he made for himself his own shelter and sat under it till he might see what would become of the city. And then verse 6, and the Lord prepared a plant, and it came up over Jonah. So uh, it's still sunny out, and the plant just grows instantaneously. He's like, oh, thanks. It's even better than my shelter. Thank you, Lord. And, he, and he, it says he was very grateful for the plant. We see Jonah's first and only, in these 11 verses, only correct attitude documented in chapter 4. He's grateful for the plant. He's thankful for that. He likes the plant. We really like when things go our way, don't we? Don't we like when things go our way? When they meet some personal need or desire of ours? Because it's all about us anyway, isn't it? When it goes our way, we're really happy. When it goes everybody else's way, we're not quite as thrilled. And Jonah, and us at times, he's not so thrilled when someone else gets their need met. In this case, at least 120,000 people had their need met. At least. In their case, an immeasurable need for what? Not just a plant over them, but their souls. This was a need for their soul was met. A lot of reason for rejoicing. But Jonah is happy about the plant. I don't care about the 120,000 souls. The plant. This plant is great. He's, it says he's grateful about the plant. If he's going to have a worship song, it's going to be about the plant. It's not going to be about God. It's not going to be about Nineveh. Uh, uh, what did you write, Jonah? When all that took place, I wrote about this plant. This plant, it was the most amazing plant. We make a big deal about stuff that's not so big a deal a lot of times, don't we? 
But Jonah's gratitude and his good feeling won't last long. This miracle plant that gave Jonah some shelter and cover from the sun quickly becomes a gone-by-morning plant, which he's not going to like near as much as the one that was covering him. And then to add to the dilemma, God sends a hot wind blowing from the east. That doesn't feel good either. A hot wind in the Middle East, in modern-day Iraq. I wonder, you know, it says Jonah uh, grew faint. Those, uh, we've had um, some that have served in the Middle East, and some of you have told me that it can get up to 140 degrees certain parts of Iraq, um, you're talking about just scorching hot, depending on the time of the year. But he grows hot and faint, and he's ready to die and just be done with his life. You know, Samson had a great final, uh, at least when Samson's like, no eyes anymore, I mean, he, he, been kind of abandoned, and God comes back to him. He has that great moment. He pushes down the pillars, and you know, all of a sudden, the Philistines are crushed under the building. But, but Jonah is opposite. It's 120,000. Repent. He's like, just, just let me die here. This is the worst. This is the worst when 120,000 people repent, and I have to see it happen. And by the way, the Hebrew word for angry it means hot. The Hebrew word for angry means hot. And so God is kind of saying, you want hot? I'll give you hot. I'll send a hot wind your way. You want to be angry and hot? I'll send. And this is a warning for us. And we want to get really hot and angry. God might say, you really want to get hot? I'll turn up the heat for you. We might want to be, we might want to be careful to temper that and say, no, I don't think, Lord, I don't want to get angry hot and have you turn up the heat, which he does. Verse 9 and 10, look at it again. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Now, in verse 4, he said, is it right for you to be angry about the repentance? Now he says, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And Jonah says, it is right for me to be angry, even to death. He's not even wavering on this. He's positive he's right in his own mind. But the Lord said, you've had pity on the plant which you've not labored nor made it grow, which came up in the night and perished in the night. This is the culmination of a dialogue that is really rare in Scripture, at least as far as I can tell. It's stunning that Jonah is saying what he's saying like he's completely lost sight of who he's talking to. But the one thing you've got to remember about God, and we don't know, I, again, I believe Jonah was a very faithful servant, and I believe that's why God called him to such a huge mission. I think he had been very faithful over the years. I think he was probably a great man uh, prior. Uh, and I'm not, uh, again, he really struggled with all this, and it was wrong, and whether it was spiritual pride or just, just anger towards a group of people. But God, uh, it's kind of like um, you're, as you, if you've ever, those of you who've been parents, um, you've probably had in your lifetime times where you didn't respond to your kids in anger or judgment 
for something they did that was exact same as they did another time. You know what I mean? Like, another, in one case, you grounded them. In another case, you didn't ground them at all. In one case, you said, not another word. In other times, you let them say too many words. And so God has the right to let Jonah talk here if he wants to, but he also has the right to silence him. But I really believe the dialogue is for us. So he's letting Jonah. And it's kind of like he let Solomon go wild for a period of time to show that if a person had every single thing they wanted, it still wouldn't make them what? Happy. And so in Scripture, sometimes God will allow a moment in time just to kind of prove the point to say, even if you could get it all off your chest, I'm telling you, it won't help you. And that's what Jonah's doing. And God's kind of allowing it, allowing him to say everything. More than once, he says, I just want to die. God's like, I just want you to know that your little tantrum is going to be in the Scriptures forever. <laughs> and everyone gets to learn from you. So when you get to heaven, you can put an arm around Jonah and say, what was, what was going on in your head those three days? You know? <laughs> He's like, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> I don't want to talk about it. I'm glad I could help you. But um, it is rare. You don't really see God dialogue this. I mean, he does do it other times. There's other times you'll see him have a dialogue with Job. And, you know, there'll be, but he's even more corrective in most other dialogues than this one. He seems to kind of really let Jonah just throw it all out there. And I also think there's something else. God actually does want us to be honest about our feelings. Now, this is a different. It's one thing to say, God, this is how I'm feeling, but also to caveat and say, but I know it's wrong. Jonah doesn't say that. He actually says he's right. He says, specifically, it is right for me to be angry. There's a big difference. I think God wants us to, we need to be honest. Say, Lord, I'm really frustrated by this. I've, I've told it, I hadn't told it in a while, but I remember I had somebody that um, I just did not like me in the workplace. I didn't really like them in the workplace, and, but I knew I was supposed to pray for them. And I said, Lord, I'm praying for this person, but I, Lord, you know I don't like them. You know they don't like me either, but I'm going to pray for them anyway. And I know my attitude is wrong. Help me. That, that Again, we can't play games with God. Just go ahead and be honest. Say, Lord, I'm really, really bothered by this whole situation but I know my attitude is wrong. And Jonah doesn't do that, but I believe God is just simply saying that, hey, even if you can say exactly what you want, you'll still be wrong. And God's going to want to, or he's going to, not just want to, he's going to adjust our attitudes eventually. Um, but at some point, Jonah's going to have to repent of this. The, the book of Jonah doesn't record what takes place the following week, to, you know, we don't know exactly what Jonah does, but he's going to have to repent of this because this is still sin to confront God when God is right and Jonah's wrong. Our flesh, though, it's Jonah is an archetype for all of us. Our flesh <clears throat> can be so strong and so self-centered and so misguided even when we think we're right. When you're arguing with God, you are not right. But we have to see it. God has to show it to us. Jonah's response to uh, God in verse 5, they're the last recorded words of Jonah in this entire book. 
the last thing he says is, it's right for me to be angry even to death. Those are the last recorded words of Jonah in the book. But thankfully, it's not God's final words. It's not God's final words. Verse 9 would be a real bummer of an ending, wouldn't it? If there wasn't verse 10 and 11, but just verse 9. Final of the book. It is right for me to be angry even to death. Close book. Done. That would be a really bad ending, but it's not the ending. Because, again, God's mercy is the centerpiece. If you're taking notes, the second piece that we'll look at. First is Jonah's attitude. We see his attitude. But God's question to the heart of Jonah is followed up by this summation. And the plant was an object lesson. The plant was an object lesson. It wasn't, I mean, it did give him shade that one afternoon. But more than anything, it was an object lesson to help Jonah see his own self-focus, his own hardness of heart, his own lack of mercy. Even though he had received a lot of mercy, he lacked giving mercy. Don't you, don't you scratch your head sometimes when you run into Christians who are really lacking mercy? And you're like, I remember how you were, and now you, you won't cut anybody any slack. You ever, run, you ever see that? And you're like, you need to be reminded of the cross. You need to go back where you started from where you found the mercy of God. Jonah was receiving the goodness of God in so many ways, but he still didn't see it. He still didn't see that he was receiving the goodness of God. All these things, again, he didn't create the plant. He didn't do any of this. He didn't cause the revival. He hadn't kept himself alive. In the heat of the day, oh, God, this is the goodness of God. God's reminding him that um, when he talks about the plant, he says, you've had pity on the plant, verse 10, which you've not labored for, nor did you make it grow, which came up on a night and perished in a night. God's reminding him that not only, not only the plant, but everything is created by God. Everything's created by God. Its value is assigned by God. And God is sovereign over all of his creation plants, the prophets that he sends, the people that he sends them to, including Nineveh, God's sovereign over all of these things. But it's with this visual demonstration that God outlines the heart of Jonah versus the heart of God. Drastically different. Jonah has pity on the plant, God says. He says, you had pity on the plant. But you've had no pity on Nineveh. Jonah is really bothered that a worm destroyed the plant. After all, Jonah now says, this is my plant. By the way, we, we, God gives us things, and we, we all of a sudden have this kind of selfish ownership of them. Right? Nothing that you or I own, we actually own. The grave will prove that. Right? Solomon came to this conclusion. Like, no, I don't take any of this stuff with me because it really doesn't belong to us. It's just on loan. But the plant, he, Jonah thought, that was my plant. Um, you see his attitude. 
God saying, look, you, did, you pitied the plant. You're bothered by this. You're bothered by that. I've got a question for all of us. Does it bother you that certain things really bother you? Let me say that again. Does it bother you that certain things really bother you? Yeah. Look in the mirror and we're like, why do I care about this? You ever asked yourself this question? Why am I bothered by this? I don't even want to be bothered by this, and I'm bothered by this. You know? It's called our sin nature. It's our sin nature. And God wants us, the Holy Spirit, before you're saved, a lot of times you won't even notice this, but post-salvation, you'll notice more and more, why in the world do I even care about this? I get personally really frustrated with myself when I'm caring about something, invested in something, agitated about something, when I know it doesn't matter. I even know it doesn't matter. And I find myself still ticked off about something that I know doesn't matter. Or when a little myth that something doesn't go our way. Doesn't go our way. As if we deserve anything. By the way, how do you, how do you think Jonah might be feeling about this point if he had rejected his feelings and trusted that in spite of his understanding he would go worship and praise God instead how do you think he might be feeling about now instead of I want to die I want to die I want to die if he would have said I don't know why you're saving these people but I'm going to rejoice and praise you for it how do you think he might be feeling about verse 10? I think a lot different. Wouldn't you say? He could have been hoisted up on everybody's shoulders. God would have sent, I think, a cool breeze instead of the hot wind. Our self-absorption, our self-righteousness, our stubborn attitudes, our pride, our resistance to the will of God our prayerlessness, our complaining, our refusal to worship, our questioning, our bitterness, our overanalyzing, our refusal to forgive, our right to be angry, our whining, all of these things and a lot more, but everything I put in that list is our flesh. All of these things are like us zipping ourselves up into our own straitjacket. And God didn't do it. We did it. Jonah could have been down in Nineveh rejoicing. And I believe, who knows, they, as he's sitting in the hot wind, they, they could have had cool air down there. These choices to refuse or have bitterness or prayerlessness or overanalyze, whatever it is, these choices don't bring us any relief. Can we all agree on this? They don't, people say, well, if I don't worry, I won't have anything to do. You're right. You can just go ahead and worry yourself right into the grave or be bitter into the grave or be unforgiving into the grave. All of these things, uh, they won't bring us any relief. They just bring more internal bondage and more frustration to the point where like Jonah, I just want to die. And yet God allows it sometimes in 
all of, maybe not to the extreme of Jonah, but some of you in this room may have been that way. You might have said, man, I just wish I was dead. Someone in this room may have thought that. Paul said that they were, you know, so heavy, almost to, almost to the point of death. And yet God allows it sometimes, doesn't he? In Jonah and in us until we can come to our senses and see his heart and understand where our heart is. God will allow us to go through this process. And we can clearly see God's heart as he has the last words in this amazing and unexpected chapter 4 journey that you would have never saw the winding turns coming. God has the last words here. We see his heart. From the command back in chapter 1, verse 1, to arise and go, to the chastening of Jonah, to the forgiveness of Jonah, to the rerouting of Jonah, to the second arise and go, chapter 3, to the preaching in Nineveh, to the repentance and turning from sin of Nineveh, to the gracious stay of God's judgment, to Jonah's continued agitation and slow learning. It all comes down to three things that we'll close with that only come from God. Three things that only come from God if you're taking notes. The first one, his perspective. Look at verse 11. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their left hand and their right hand? God has a perspective that we don't see. Jonah had never really kind of considered this. Uh, Jesus says something similar to Paul uh, in the book of Acts. I'll read it to you. It's in uh, Acts chapter 26. Um, Jesus says to Paul that as I send you, I now send you to open their eyes. These are Gentiles that Paul was the apostle primarily to the Gentiles. Again, uh, Peter primarily to the Jews. But he says, I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. Um, no matter what Paul thought of <coughs> some of the Gentiles <coughs> or some of the Romans, no matter what he thought of them, God says they're in total darkness and they're under the bondage of Satan. And of Nineveh, God says, from me looking down from heaven, they don't know their right hand from their left hand. It's not just like a southern mom saying, you ain't know your right hand from your left hand. This is really God looking down and saying that literally, from a spiritual perspective, they completely, all the evil they've done, they, they didn't even know it was evil at times. They were so desensitized. And by the way, when you see people that, um, you know, maybe there's generations of sin in the family, and they become desensitized. You're like, how, you know, how in the world... And I know when we go in to, to minister to some of the juvenile, some of them come from multiple generations of you know, families that have just been uh, in drugs or in violence and things like that. And you're like, how do you think this way? Well, sometimes people grow up in darkness. That's all they know. 
So the children of Nineveh and their children and their children, God says, they don't know their right hand from their left hand. From my perspective, from your perspective, they should know better. But from my perspective, I'm telling you, they don't know better. Now, I don't know how, you know, again, well, how does this square with there? God puts a conscience in everybody. He does, but again, from God's perspective, he's looking down and he's saying, I see that they need someone to come to them. That's God's perspective. I need someone. How shall they hear unless there's a preacher, the scripture says. So from God's perspective, they need to hear truth. Jonah's perspective, they just need a judgment. But God doesn't ask for our perspective. Then we have God's sovereignty. He'll send whom he chooses, who he calls, who he directs, if he wants to send a whale, he'll send a whale, right? If he wants to send a donkey, he'll send a donkey. But he also can protect. He can send Jonah. Even though Jonah doesn't want to go, I'm going to protect you anyway. You see the sovereignty of God in all this. The plant comes up. All this is the sovereignty of God. Every single chess move, God is making the move. Now, that should make us rest in the arms of God, knowing he has sovereign control over everything. Amen? Like, look, I really, I, I, I have people there you don't know of. I have it under control. Jonah, don't think about your own wisdom. Trust me. He not only protected and preserved Jonah, but he also protected the message. He told Paul he'd do the same thing in uh, that same chapter, Acts 26, verse 7. He said, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles. Paul said, God said to Paul, when I send you, I'll have you, I'll have a hedge of protection around you. Even though the ship might wreck, you'll still make it safely to land. Even though a snake might bite you, you won't die from it. Even though they throw you in jail, you'll get out of jail. A couple times, actually. Even though they left you for dead, stoning you, you'll actually get up. And some people believe Paul even went up into heaven and was sent back. God's sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over your life. He's sovereign over my life. The only reason you're still alive right now is the sovereignty of God. It's not because you had enough vitamins and you did everything right and you worked out better than everybody else. It's not because you planned your finances better than everybody. It's the sovereignty of God that you and I are alive. Amen? That's it. He's sovereign. But he's also sovereign that he's going to send his message whether we think it should be sent or whether we're going to be obedient, he's going to send his message anyway. Look at what this says from A.W. Tozer. God is not silent. In his sovereignty, God is going to speak forth. And that's a good thing. God is not silent. It is the nature of God to speak. The second person of the Holy Trinity is called the Word. In his sovereignty, I'm going to send the message to Nineveh, and Jonah, you're not going to get in the way of it. I'll even use you in spite of you. Not because of you, in spite of you. His message will go forth. Aren't you glad that God will make sure that his message goes forth? It's a testament to the fact that even if the church was unwilling to go, God would propel it forward anyway. And sometimes we are stubborn and we don't want to go, and God says, eventually, I will propel you forward if you belong to him. Whom the Lord loves, he chases. Whom the Lord loves, he sends. He will stir up and make it happen, his message will go forth. And lastly, 
we have his mercy. His mercy. When God sees the need and sends his word, he does so fully willing to extend his immeasurable mercy. He wasn't, he wasn't, it wasn't like, you know, Halloween, the kids will say trick or treat. Right? God, this, wasn't a, this wasn't a shell game. If Nineveh repented, they really would receive what? Mercy. So what Jonah was afraid of. He knew God would actually be faithful. But in his faithfulness, he's willing to extend mercy. I say often, don't pray to God for justice. Only pray for mercy. None of us deserve, well, we deserve justice, but none of us really would want it. Nobody, and no matter who they are, is worthy of mercy, but no one is beyond his mercy. No one's beyond his mercy. Even on the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. If we cry out for it, and Nineveh did, we can receive God's mercy. I thank God that I did that in June of 1995. In Titus 3.5, it tells us, not of works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. You and I have never done enough good works to merit anything. We'll see this again in Hebrews chapter 7 on Sunday with Jesus, our high priest. The law can't perfect us, but neither can any works perfect us. It's only his mercy, only the mercy of God. Alan Redpath said, God's mercy with a sinner is only equaled and perhaps outmatched, this is we see this in Jonah, by his patience with the saints, you and me. Isn't that the truth? I have found, I, I hope you're seeing this in your life. I have found, if you're born again, listen to, if you don't hear anything else, listen as we close the last couple of points. If you're born again, the longer you're saved, the more you'll learn about your own wretchedness than everybody else's. The longer you're saved, the more you appreciate mercy. The longer you're saved, the more you learn about your own wretchedness. And you, early when you're saved, you're a sin spotter with everybody. The longer you're saved, the more God says, you're going to learn a lot about you, Jonah, Tim, whatever your names are here tonight. I'm not going to name your names. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone else is exonerated from their sins. That, we're not saying that at all. Jonah still had to go preach to Nineveh. doesn't mean that your next-door neighbor or your coworker is exonerated from your, their sins. They're not. But you can now more readily extend mercy and extend prayer for them and extend an invitation via the gospel because you're seeing more of the mercy you're receiving. Does that make sense? They're not exonerated, but the longer you're saved, I agree with Alan Redpath, we start to see, whoa, we, Jonah is somehow having a real blind spot on this one. For a period of time. And we can have it for a period of time. But the more you extend 
mercy, guess what it brings us? Joy. Notice how lacking joy Jonah was not extending mercy. When he wasn't extending mercy, he was miserable. It even says his misery is, the word misery is mentioned. Verse 6, from his misery. He has misery and a desire to die, and he's angry. These are wonderful feelings, right? Jonah, how are you doing? Well, I'm miserable. I'm really angry. I'm frustrated. I want to die. What else do you want to know? All he had to do, God says, if you would extend, my nature is mercy, you're not, you're not mirroring my nature, and now you're wondering why you're miserable. One of the key things for us as believers is to extend mercy to receive joy. Extend mercy to receive joy. And the longer you're saved, the more you should see your own wretchedness, not everybody else's. Not that you won't see it, but I'm saying that's not your focal point. And Warren Wearsby makes this point as well. Warren Wearsby says, when a Christian shows mercy, he experiences liberation. This is post-salvation. This is not like, I mean, this is not like the first week. I'm talking about years of being saved. The more you extend mercy, it brings liberation. Because Satan will not stop attacking you now that you're saved. No, he's going to attack you more now that you're saved. So you're going to need more liberation, more mercy, and you're going to have to give out more mercy. Does that make sense? The more you receive, the more you're giving it right back out. Get a lot of mercy, give a lot of mercy. Get a lot of liberation, get a lot of joy. Amen? That's what the Lord is saying. We could have, we should have, Jonah should have had. But God says, look, I want you to know my heart. I love lost people. And I want you to love lost people. And as you give out that mercy, I'm going to give that mercy to you. After God spoke, we'll close with this one little uh, nugget, if you will. We don't know if this is a fact or not, but Jewish tradition states that Jonah, after verse 11, again, passed down more through word of mouth. It's not in the scriptures. Jewish tradition, uh, rabbis, writings, believe that Jonah fell on his face, and what is recorded of what they believe he said is a law, uh, govern your world according to the measure of mercy, as it is said, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. It is Jewish tradition that Jonah fell and did repent after verse 11. And I really believe he did anyway. I believe when we get to heaven, it's just like Solomon. It's, it's more of like God is showing all the works and the flaws to say, this is how off the rails even my own kids can get, even doing the right things for me with the wrong attitudes. And, I, and that's the Jewish tradition that he actually fell on his face and said, to our Lord God belong mercy and forgiveness. And I really do believe that um, Jonah came around, although it's not recorded. We'll have to wait till we get to heaven to find exactly how things went post verse 11. But here's the thing for us. Let's accept God's mercy. Let's walk in God's mercy, and let's extend his mercy for their benefit, but also our own joy and liberation as well. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you again for the surety of your word, the compass that it is in our life, the direction. And Lord, we pray that uh, you would indeed 
uh, stir in us an appreciation for mercy that we would be able to give it. Because we're going to meet a lot of people, even in the next few days, who are going to need the mercy of God. And Lord, may we love them enough to have mercy, but also love them enough to invite them to church, share the gospel, pray for them, ask them if we can pray with them, for them. And Lord, that we would be your hands and feet of mercy as you've called us to be. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.